Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, we'll look at verses 7 to 10 today. Hebrews 13, 7 to 10. You know, we humans are spiritual beings. No matter what the times or the culture in which we live, we will search for ways. Indeed, we will try almost anything to nurture that spiritual part of us. Over the centuries, that pursuit of spirituality has taken many forms, many extreme forms. The retreat to solitude, for example. Not just retreat from people, but retreat from any speech, retreat even from any thoughts. Or the rigors of pilgrimages, People spending their last dime to travel to some holy site or mounting stone steps on bloodied knees to just touch some holy relic. Pursuit of spiritual health. Or selfless service. People adopting a life of menial work in the most obscure place for the most undeserving people in search of health of their own soul. Or even self-inflicted pain, extreme fasting and deprivation, sweat lodges and purification rituals which test the limits of human endurance. Even suicide as a final spiritual act in search of the health of our souls. There seems to be no limit the human pursuit of spiritual life. And we Christians, more than anyone, ought to care about our spiritual health. But as we see in our text this morning, God warns us about getting carried away by strange, unbiblical ideas and instead gives us practical, reasonable instruction on the pursuit of spiritual health. That's what's going on in this little brief text. Let me read it, verses 7 to 10. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And there we'll stop. Here the Spirit gives us two practical ways to nurture our Christian faith. The first is quite easy to understand. The second is more difficult. The first is this. Imitate the faithful. Imitate the faithful. In so many religions, the pursuit of spirituality calls for the shutting down of the mind. Not so in Christianity. That's not the teaching of the Bible. Indeed, Christians are called to diligently pursue knowing the truth, to listen and ponder and consider the implications of that which they learn, to think on those things and put them into practice, and to remember the things that they heard and found to be true. So along those lines, verse 7 commands us to remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. 
There's several references in this uh, chapter to Christian leaders. We have this at verse 7, and then we also have uh, such references in verses eight, uh, 17 and 24. But there's a difference. In verses 17 and 24, it's talking about the present leaders of the church. In verse 7, it's talking about past leaders now gone. Now, in the book of Hebrews, there has already been repeated, though somewhat oblique sometimes, uh, references to these past leaders. Chapter 2, there was a reference to those who brought the gospel to you, having first received it from the Lord. And then in chapter 6, they're called to imitate others, apparently those who taught them the faith. And in chapter 10, they're called to read recall the days when they received the light. Again, that sounds like somebody evangelizing or teaching them. And so here they're called to remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. And if you're a Christian, you too heard that word of the gospel from someone. You probably heard it from many people over the years, even from people you've never met, but who perhaps you've read. In every generation, God gives us notable teachers and preachers whose influence extends way beyond their immediate ministry. And even beyond those great teachers of our generation, the church has many generations of church fathers from whom the gospel has been passed down to us. And great missionaries leader from whom, missionary leaders from whom the whole world has heard the gospel. Though the most impressive influences in your life might be simply the faithful pastor of your youth, or your mother at whose knee you first heard about Jesus, or a godly father who not only instructed you, but modeled the Christian life. But whoever it might be, and indeed it may include several of those people, imitate the faithful. That's how you grow. Imitate the faithful. Now this does not mean we're to blindly follow anyone who presents himself as a teacher. Like you, I've had many teachers from whom I probably learned some things. Though even as a youth, I knew they had no business teaching. So the Spirit gives us a criterion as we choose whom we are to imitate. He says, consider the outcome of their life. Some leaders are pretty impressive when we first hear them, but after a while their shine begins to fade. The inconsistencies between their words and their actions becomes troubling, and the eventual outcome of their lives is sometimes disastrous. So we listen carefully, and we consider closely, and we're slow to jump on someone's bandwagon, and we look for those with a long history of faithfulness, even those now in glory, before we choose a pattern to use as a model for our life. That's what we're called to do here, to imitate the faithful. Now, we live in a day when many unashamedly advise us to do as I say, not as I do. But the Bible has a very different standard of teaching. The Apostle Paul repeatedly writes to the churches, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. In fact, in one place, he goes even further, saying it effect, if I may paraphrase, in case you can't remember what that looks like, I'm sending Timothy. You imitate Timothy, because Timothy is imitating me, and I'm imitating Christ. If you want to grow in your relationship to Christ, if you want to grow to spiritual maturity, 
imitate those who have proved faithful. Now, imitating leaders of the past probably sounds rather old-fashioned to many. We love what is new. We consider what is new to be better. But when it comes to our spiritual health, new is not better. Innovation does not mean improvement. Folks, we really need to hear this. All around us, people are betting their lives and their futures and their families and their children and their eternal souls on things which have not been tested. New, trendy, crazy ideas which may prove to be devastating to them. Worse, they're betting themselves and their lives on ideas which fly in the face of the Word of God, which is tried and true. Well, I understand the fascination with something new and different, but settle for a new shirt or a new hairdo. Don't bet your eternal soul on some innovation in the faith. For Christ does not change. That's the rationale here. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. So the life of the truly faithful will reflect that same kind of unwavering allegiance to the changeless one. And that will continue to be applicable for generations and generations and generations to come. Imitate those who are faithful to the unchangeable Savior. For me, James Montgomery Boyce was such a model, just to be personal for a moment. James Montgomery Boyce was a man who had no greater agenda. As he preached every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening, as he was on the radio for years, weekly, as he lectured and uh, did conferences, as he wrote over 50 books, one agenda, to proclaim clearly what God's Word says. He was a great scholar, but he didn't try to speak to scholars. He just spoke to the folks. Thus saith the Lord. He was a man who believed in long faithfulness in the ministry. He preached his first sermon at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia on Easter Sunday in 1968. Just before he died, he preached his last Sunday, his last sermon in that church on Easter Sunday of 2000. Exactly 32 years preaching to that congregation. And he was a man who, when suddenly found to be dying of liver cancer and died within a few weeks after he found out, used even that event to teach people how God's good and perfect will comes to us, not as we expect, but even in dying from liver cancer. Seeking to model my life after the life and ministry of James Boyce is an example of imitating the faithful. And that's what God calls you to do. Those you've known, those whose biographies you've read, imitate the faithful. That's the road to spiritual health. Then there's a second, somewhat more difficult truth here in verses 9 and 10. And that brings us to our second point. Feed on the grace of Jesus. Feed on the grace of Jesus. In most every culture, every religion, the eating of food is tied somehow to spirituality. What foods are eaten, what ones are forbidden, how they're prepared, how they're consecrated for holy use, who can eat what, all those kind of things. That was true in Judaism. There were lots of kosher requirements, what could be eaten and what was forbidden. 
There were procedures concerning how the food was to be prepared and offered to the Lord. Indeed, eating was not just a social time. It had to do with spiritual life. In the New Testament, there are also several controversies concerning food. There's the issue of what foods were unclean. Remember Peter's vision where the Lord let down from heaven a sheet filled with unclean foods, unclean animals, and said, kill and eat. And Peter said, no way, not me. There's that controversy. And then there's the, there's the recurring issue of eating food offered to idols, a very real thing in the first century culture. Paul discusses that in 1 Corinthians 8, for example. Then there's the touch-not-taste-not kind of mentality, which was the Gnostic view of, uh, of eating, which uh, Paul addressed in the church, to the church in Colossae. And then there's the forbidding of uh, food and wine, uh, the false asceticism about which Paul warned young Timothy, and there's this passage, lots and lots of places where food and its spiritual implications are discussed in the New Testament. So let's think about what might have been the issue with these particular people, these readers of the book of Hebrews when it was first sent. Verse 10 speaks of the Jewish community's custom of eating from the altar. Eating from the altar. We, we probably, some of us erroneously think, that sacrifices that were offered in the temple in Jerusalem were just burned up on the altar. And some were. But that's not generally true. Most of the sacrifices offered there were eaten. Part of the meat was given to the priest, and the rest was eaten by the worshiper and his family. Think, for example, of the Passover meal. The Passover meal was not just a sacrifice. It was dinner for that family. Now, you don't have to work very hard to imagine how that notion, how notion could arise that the food that came from the altar would not only nourish your body, but it would nourish your soul. Of course, these readers who were Jewish would come to embrace Christ, Jewish Christians, were now at odds with Judaism because of their faith in Christ. They believed that by one sacrifice, Jesus had satisfied God's requirements and that no more sacrifices needed to be made. But as these Christians gathered for worship in someone's home, singing and praying and hearing God's word proclaimed, they knew very well that over at their temple, at the temple in Jerusalem, their friends, their family members, were eating what seemed to be more holy food than their coffee and donuts or whatever they had here. Holy food consecrated on the altar in the temple of the Lord. Perhaps you can imagine the tug at their heart that that would create. Can you see how you might feel that because of your faith in Jesus... You're missing some of the blessing, the spiritual power attached to food presented on the altar. I doubt we could just easily walk away from all that long tradition and never feel as if our soul was left hungry. That was the situation these people faced. It was testing their faith in Christ. Was he enough? But in these verses, the Spirit turns the tables on their longing for the old Jewish ways. First in verse 9, he informs them that our hearts were never strengthened 
by ceremonial foods. That's not how God works. Or as Jesus said, it's not what goes into your body that makes you holy or defiles you. It's what comes out of your body, out of your mouth. Now such a view of ceremonial foods might have been a long tradition, but he starts off in verse 9 saying there's no substance to that. That's not how it is. And then in verse 10 he says, he goes even further, he says, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Really? You see, throughout the whole book of Hebrews, we've heard that in Christ, we have a better revelation of the Father. We have a better uh, covenant. We have a better mediator in Christ. We have a better sacrifice in the sacrifice of Christ. We have a better high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a better mountain before which we come to worship him. So in Christ, we also have a better altar from which to eat. In other words, the food from the altar that really matters is what we have in Christ and not what the unbelieving Jews had from the temple in Jerusalem. So what is this all about, this eating from the altar? Well, let's talk about it a minute. The altar mentioned here is simply a reference to the death of Jesus. When Jesus died on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem, he offered himself to the Father once for all as an atonement for our sins. That Roman cross wasn't much of an altar, but that's where he died. Then according to Hebrews 9, he entered God's most holy place in the true tabernacle, the one not made by hands in heaven, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So whether the altar is a reference to the cross or a reference to the heavenly temple, either way, the focus is clearly on the sacrificial dying of Jesus. The point is that benefits come to us from Jesus' death on our behalf. Nothing less than the all-sufficient grace of God comes to us. Things that are not available, grace that is not given to those who do not believe in Jesus, even if they're eating food from the altar in the temple. So how do we take hold of that grace? Well, our text uses the language of eating which has caused some to think this is a reference to the Lord's Supper, though it is not, and I'll talk about that more a little bit before we eat the supper. Indeed, John 6, in John 6, Jesus himself explains that eating his flesh is a metaphor for believing in him, trusting in him. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not go hungry. He who believes in me will not be thirsty. That's what we're saying in this second point. By coming to Jesus and believing Jesus, we feed on the grace of Jesus. So what does that look like? Feeding on grace by believing. Well, let me give you some examples of how it works. 
In his word, the Lord says, whoever calls upon me will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We hear that. And we believe it. We devour that word. It's food for our souls. We feed our hearts on that promised grace and call upon the Lord knowing that he keeps his promise and saves us. When the Lord says, if you confess your sin, I am faithful and just, and I will forgive you your sin. And we hear that word, and we believe it. And we devour that word as food for our souls. We feed our hearts on that promised grace of forgiveness. And we're strengthened and assured that it's true. When the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you, we believe him. We devour that word as food for our souls. We feed our hearts on his promise that his grace is enough today again. And we're strengthened. When the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you, though it looks like he has, we believe him. We hold on to that promise. We eat it. We devour it. We feed upon it. Say, this I cling to. And our souls are strengthened that he's not forgotten us. When the Lord says, I will provide for all your needs. And it looks like we're poor. But the Lord says, I will provide for all your needs. We believe him. And we cling to that. We chew on that. And trust him. When the Lord says, when you walk through the deep waters and when you go through the fires of the furnace, I will not abandon you. And so when our feet are getting wet and it's getting hot, we remember the promise and we believe it. And we devour it. We wrap our soul around it. We wrap our mind around it. And we rest our whole life in it. And we're strengthened by that grace. When the Lord says, I will not allow any temptation to overtake you, that I don't give you strength to endure. We believe him. And when the temptations come, we don't despair because we're trusting. We're we're, we're, we're confident. We've eaten this truth and devoured it, and it's in our guts that he has not abandoned us, and we're not in over our heads. When the Lord says, I will work everything together for good to bring you to glory, and it looks like everything is falling apart about our life. Nonetheless, we say, he promised. I eat that promise. I devour that promise. I feed on that promise. And I trust him through all this mess to bring me to glory just like he promised. And when the Lord says, if this earthly tent of your body is destroyed, you have an eternal home, a new body in heaven, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And we lay on our deathbed, and the pain racks our bodies. But we know what he said. And we eat it, and we chew on it, and we hold on to it. We devour it with our hearts, with all the strength we have. He has promised more than this dying. 
He has promised that this death will be swallowed up in life, and I will rest my soul on his grace. Because of the death of Jesus, because he laid his life on the altar, so to speak, as a sacrifice of atonement, we are daily nourished by his grace as we come to him and believe in him and appropriate his many, many promises and rest our very lives upon his word. Because of the metaphorical language, that second point's a little difficult to unpack, but the truths of this passage are actually quite simple. The issue is how do you grow your spiritual life? And we're given two practical exhortations. Imitate the faithful. Find those faithful disciples who have both taught and lived out God's word and imitate them. Do what they have done. For the Lord doesn't change. What he was to them, he will be to you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then secondly, feed on the grace of Jesus. Eating is the way we sustain life. We take that which is other than us, we take it into us, and it becomes us. And so we turn our hearts in faith to Jesus, who sacrificed his life that we might know his grace. And we turn our hungry souls to him and are fed, strengthened, nurtured, and made to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we seem willing sometimes to do the most outlandish things in search of uh, spiritual health and spiritual power, cleansing or renewal. Oh, Father, just give us grace to do the things you tell us to find faithful servants of yours that have gone before us and to learn their lives and imitate their lives and do what they did. And understand, Lord, that all your grace flows from the altar, from the death of Jesus, and to never turn away from that, but to eat of that, to take it to ourselves, to claim the promise, to rest in you, to rest our very lives in you and be fed and be given life and strength. Help us, Lord, to learn to walk in your ways as you've commanded us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we come to the Lord's Supper, we always uh, join our voices in professing our faith in uh, in the Apostles' Creed. If you'll find your hymnal, it's back on page 845 if you don't have it all memorized already. Let's uh, recite together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living 
and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.